0: Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Finance, Real Estate 320. This happens to be show number 27. Today we're going to continue on talking about qualifying the borrower or the person that's borrowing the money to buy the uh, property or buy the real estate. Uh, what I'm going to be doing today is briefly t- just taking a quick review about what we talked about, <coughs> excuse me, the last time. Uh, and then, what I'm going to do uh, near the end of the class is, I'm going to be going to a couple of websites. And uh, one of them I found was really did a, what I thought a really good job at at least displaying some basic information about qualifying for a loan, uh, the loan process, the loan procedures, some underwriting uh, guidelines for the uh, that underwriters use, if you will, when looking at underwriting alone, not not really detailed, just some basics. Then the second thing is, if time permits, I found an additional website that provides some training or training guidelines on the underwriting process that Fannie Mae uses, and it specifically is designed for, uh, if you will, for people that are looking to be underwriters. So it's not... The greatest thing in the world, but at least it provides you some guidance and some information for those of you that uh, may be interested in entering in the real estate field, but doing something in the area of finance and specifically maybe in the area of underwriting. It's just to give you some kind of guidance and some kind of uh, ideas. So anyway, moving on to what we talked about the last time, you know, the last couple chapters that we have in this book talk about the two parts when you get ready to buy a piece of property or to borrow money. One is getting the borrower, you know, the person t- borrowing the money, getting them qualified to borrow the money. And the second chapter near the end of this uh, book talks about the appraisal, or looking at the property itself. As I've mentioned many times before, it's very, very important that we really understand, uh, even so we're pledging the house. As collateral for the loan, meaning, hey, you know what? If I don't make the loan payments, you know, you can take my house back. In reality, the lender does not really want the house. What the lender really wants is they want to have somebody that they're going to lend the money to, that they're going to get a regular monthly payments. The mo- payments are going to come in on time. That they're uh, consistently going to be there. They're not going to be making the payments late. Uh, again, lenders do not want to be in that position. They don't want to own property. They're not set up to manage it. They're not set up to take it back. They're just kind of set up to lend the money out and then collect the monthly interest is what they're really in business for. So that's why there's such a high degree of uh, attention, if you will, put on looking at whether or not the borrower themselves can financially handle the property. And we talked about the last time uh, we talked about the fact that the first thing that we do when we're looking at somebody that's borrowing money is can the person have, do they have the ability to make the monthly payments? And we talked about that in the area of income. So in other words, do they earn enough money where they can go ahead and make the house payment, pay their normal uh, you know, principal interest, taxes and insurance, if you will, in many cases, homeowners' uh, dues, can they afford the maintenance on the property? And can they also at the same time be able to make their car payments, uh, buy food and clothing for their family? Because remember, you know, sometimes if it's a difference between food or it's, or it's the house, sometimes you may have to buy the food. So consequently, you're looking. lenders are looking at that overall view. Can this person realistically be able to afford that? The second thing is that we always look at is something we call the willingness, and that has to do with their credit. In other words, are the people of the type that consistently make their monthly payments on whatever they've borrowed? Consistently make their car payments, their payments on their charge cards, so on and so forth. And how much do they owe? And, uh, you know, how much credit do they have outstanding? So, that, in other words, they look at that income stream. The second thing is is that they, as we mentioned here in the beginning of this chapter, the lender then looks at once they've qualified the individual, in fact, you may very well even get the individual qualified before they ever buy, a, even make a purchase offer on a house, but the second part of this equation is does the property fit or qualify for the loan amount? In other words, will it appraise to the value that you want to borrow or the amount of money you want to borrow on the house to purchase the property or to refinance it? we talked <clears throat> excuse me for a minute we talked about certain kinds of underwriting standards one of the things that we discussed was income we talked about the fact that one of the things that the lender is basically looking for is what we call stable monthly income and so consequently they're looking at things like how long have you had that present job how long have you been employed in that particular field are you new to the field are you new to the profession uh is there a reasonable expectation that that income that you earn from that job or that occupation is going to come in consistently month after month after month? So they're looking at that, and so we talked about that. We also talked about, in the area of stable monthly income, different types of income. We talked about the quality of the income, the durability. In other words, quality, is a good income? Is it going to continue to come in? We also talked about some other money that you or your clients may be earning, that we have that the lender that the, that the lender's going to look at and say can we really use this to help qualify the person for the loan and some of those things might be things like bonuses you know uh certain companies for example on a yearly basis may have a bonus to employees looking at things like commissions i think i talked about the fact that uh in certain professions like for somebody that sells uh cars or works at a car dealership they're making a basic uh income and then on top of that their, the majority of their income is coming from commissions, uh, so you're going to kind of take a look at that. Uh, also, some people will be looking at the fact of uh, are they using some of their money that they earn on a part-time basis. There are many people, for example, uh, that will work two jobs, and they will work those jobs for a whole bunch of years. So if somebody's working full-time and then has consistently had a part-time job, the underwriter may, be al- may allow that individual based on them proving that they've been earning that income for a period of time, to include that in their overall income to qualify for the property. Uh, we also talked about some other things like uh, overtime. And uh, overtime is another one. There are certain professions, I think I use nursing as one of them, uh, that uh, where the nurses may make a base salary of, say, $70,000 a year, and then they work in the operating room or they work on uh, one of the uh, floors in the hospital, and then consistently, I mean, year in and year out, they're making another thirty thousand dollars a year in overtime, consistently. And they would prove that, by the way, through their wage statements, through their income tax statements, but again, it's providing or looking at the income. A couple of the things that wouldn't qualify for uh one of the things that wouldn't qualify for income is things that may go away after a period of time. Things such as unemployment. So getting a house based on your unemployment check or your welfare check Probably is not going to help you qualify for the loan. Uh, the other thing that they may look, be looking at too is people, and sometimes people will earn a, or get a fairly substantial amount of money through things like alimony, child support, child maintenance. Again, as the book had talked about, the underwriter is going to look at that and look at, for example, how old are the children? The children, if they're fairly young, five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, then there's a reasonable expectation that that child support is going to continue until the child reaches 18. But if the child happens to be 16 or 17 years old, there's a good possibility, or probably, what's going to happen as soon as they hit 18, that child support is going to stop. Now that could be on both sides. If it happens to be the person receiving the child support, that means that you know, uh, two years from today, there maybe you're not going to get that three, four, five hundred dollar a month check. On the other hand, the person that's paying that on a monthly basis may be somebody that may say, you know, this is going to stop, I will not have to be making this payment in another two years. So kind of again looking at all of those things. We also talked about things like looking at income from other family members. It's not uncommon, for example, for uh, you know people to have a home and maybe the kids are earning a living and uh, maybe in some cases they're providing a fairly substantial amount of the income to the family home. But in many cases, the lenders will, may not look at that as being income to the family. As I mentioned, you know, when I was growing up, my parents made me, uh, pay, uh, room, what would they call room and board, which apparently a lot of people today don't have to do. But, uh, in my particular case, I supplied, while I was going to school, quite a bit of the family income working on a part-time job. Uh, the other thing, too, is self-employment. Self-employment happens to be something that, uh, that, uh, That lenders will look at and will want some additional statements that normally we who work for a company or a government entity won't have to provide. In other words, normally we earn our living through the fact of a monthly or a weekly pay statement or a pay stub where our employer turns around, collects, you know, pays us, takes out the income taxes, takes out the retirement plan, takes out the medical benefits and then gives us a check. And then there's always proof of that in the form of pay stubs. Somebody that happens to be a, a sole proprietor or owns their own business, that can be where maybe they are going to have to provide things like uh, income tax statements. They may have to provide audited or uh, something that their accountant has gone through, financial statements showing income, assets, liabilities, so on and so forth. So that might be something they may have to do. We also talked about something called the co-mortgager. Remember, a co-mortgager is somebody that's going to go along and put their financial statement on the line with the person that's borrowing the money and essentially saying that, you know what, if that person doesn't pay, I'll I'll make sure I pay. And uh, typically we see that in where parents are trying to help their children buy their first house or first home. Typically it might be in the area of a, their first condominium, first townhouse. And what's happening is that the parent is going along with the child and saying, I will put my financial statements up, which means the parents have to qualify to make those payments or some portion of those payments. And uh, they also, at the same time, have to make enough money to not only be able to afford to do that, but also to afford to make the payments on their own property and cover their own bills. So that could be a situation. We talked about things like rental income. Uh, you know, you may have rental property where you're basically going to have to take and show, uh, you know, what, how much income you're coming into the property. You may have to have your accountant, especially if it's like apartment houses or office buildings or shopping centers, may have to provide financial statements showing this is the property, these are the rents, these are the contracts, this is where the money's coming from, this is how much they're making or losing on the property. So you may have to do that. And then we talked about the fact of verifying income that it used to be a long time ago that Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac used to require the employer to actually uh, or uh, would send a a form to the employer and the employer would have to fill it out and then send it back where nowadays the employer is typically depending a lot upon things like pay stubs, what we call W-2 forms, or uh, or, uh, income tax statements to prove that because when you're sending it to an employer, you know, the employer, you're really asking that employer to take time away from the other things they're doing and then maybe some cases hire somebody to do nothing more than to provide fill out those statements. And, again, I think sometimes employers get a little bit nervous about providing certain kinds of information to people because, you know, they could possibly, if they don't put something down exactly correctly, could be sued or there could be a problem. So I think nowadays it's just basically you're looking at those financial uh pay stubs that people receive on either a monthly basis or a weekly basis. The next thing, though, is that, and I'm going to move over here to the document camera in a second, is now that we've looked at the fact of the income that the people have made, in other words, the monthly income coming into the property, the underwriter is also going to be looking at what assets you have. In other words, assets like cash in the bank, real estate that you own, cars, houses, so on and so forth, and what liabilities that you have. And they're going to be looking at two things, and I'll be mentioning that in a minute. They're going to be looking at your net worth, but they're going to be looking at not only what you say, but they're going to be verifying that. And when they verify that, they're going to want to make sure that the statements that you have said, the information that you have provided, is correct. So I'm going to move over here to my old document, friendly document camera for a minute, and we'll talk a little bit about what this is. So this has to do, now that we're finished with this income thing, we're talking now about something called net worth. And it says, according to the Federal National Mortgage Association, accumulation of net worth is a strong indication of credit worthiness. So in other words, if you have somebody that has had the discipline to take money out of their paycheck and put it in the bank for a rainy day, that's a good indication that they're a much better or qualified credit risk than somebody that has absolutely no money in the bank whatsoever and lives from paycheck to paycheck. Uh, they, may, they may be paying their bills on time, but what happens is if anything happens, like they get sick or ill or lose their job, the next thing you know, they cannot make their payments. So if somebody having money or assets in the bank is a good indicator that they could be a good credit risk, besides just their credit, how often they pay. Says a borrower who has built up a significant net worth from earnings, savings, and other investment activities clearly has the ability to manage financial affairs and to accumulate wealth. The individual's net worth is determined by subtracting their personal liabilities from their total assets. Personal liabilities would be things, uh, money you owe on the credit cards, car loans, furniture loans, loans for your stereo against your total, um, uh, if you will, your total assets. Assets would be things like the car, the value of the car you own, the value of your motorhome, the value of your stereo equipment, the value of your furniture, so on and so forth. Okay. Again, that is a very good indicator because one of the things that uh, you know, and this is just personal to me, that I I don't. One of the things that I think everybody should really get themselves in a the habit of doing, especially at a very young age, is pay, what I call paying themselves first. You should really get into the position, even if you can only put in $5 a payday into a bank account, you should start getting in the habit of having that money taken out of your check and put into an account. And then as you go along in life and you get a pay raise, add a little bit to that. And what's amazing is that after you do that for a period of time, it sort of starts to become a little bit addictive, and it allows you to have a form of a comfort zone that you know if something happens, you have got a little bit of money put away. It's best to do that than it is to live from paycheck to paycheck. Uh, and uh, the easiest way to do it is, is if you work for an employer is to go down there and find out if you can have, or nowadays we can have most employers are allowing things like direct deposits. Just go in there and have your credit union or your bank take a certain amount of money away and put it in some kind of an account. And you'd be surprised. It really helps you accumulate that amount of money. Uh, it's very, very helpful. Uh, don't don't get in the habit of living from paycheck to paycheck. I mean, you're better off to do without something than you are to uh, than you are to all of a sudden have no, no cushion whatsoever. And then something happens, and bang! You're, you, next thing you know, you're down there pawning off your stereo equipment, or you're not making payments on your car, or something. Uh, and that is a basic part of financial planning, By that's one of the basics of financial planning. It says, if a borrower has managed debt service to income ratio and above normal net worth can offset the deficiency. Let me read that again. It says, if a borrower has a marginal debt service to income ratio and above normal net worth can offset this deficiency, meaning that if, you, if your ratio is a little bit tight, but you see that you've been putting money away, that can help you in qualifying for the loan. Underwriters know that net worth is liquid for, in a liquid form can be used to pay unexpected bills or to support a borrower when there has been a temporary interruption in income. So very, very important. Get, keep in mind that they're looking at a lot of other things besides just how much you make. Okay, they're looking at other factors in the overall perspective of the individual. Okay. Going on behind here that says required reserves for closing. Uh, they're talking here just about the fact that uh, they're saying, um, as a safeguard against unexpected bills or temporary loss of income and as a general indicator of financial ability, Fannie Mae requires the borrower to have sufficient cash on deposit. Or in the form of a highly liquid asset to cover two months' payments, principal and interest, taxes and insurance, if applicable, mortgage insurance after the down payment and the paying of all closing costs. Okay. Again, just to make sure that you have that cushion in there. In fact, in many cases, that's why on a new, brand new loan, why the the guidelines will require you to have um, an impound account so that in the event so that every month when you make a payment you're not actually making the payment and that money is going away it's going into a bank account and then the lender who's servicing the loan will then make the mortgage uh will make the mortgage payment will pay the property taxes twice a year and pay the insurance once a year okay that's that cushion okay um Next thing they want to mention is that they are going to do a verification of assets. You know, they're going to include, you know, it says included in every loan application is a section devoted to assets. The underwriter will take whatever steps are necessary to verify the nature and the value of the assets held by the borrower. The purpose of the asset verification purpose is twofold, and it goes on from there. And I think this is important that we understand uh, what this is. Number one, it must be determined that the bar has sufficient liquid assets to make the cash down payment and pay the closing costs uh, and other incidental expenses of the property. Liquid assets include, liquid means that it can be changed into cash immediately. Like if you have money in a savings account, that's liquid. If you have money in real estate, that's not liquid because it could take months before you sell it and get your money out. Okay, So they're going to verify that. Number two, the underwriter wants to know if the borrower has sufficient reserves to handle typical household expenses and emergencies. Okay? So they're going to be looking at that. And they are going to verify that. They are going to verify the, the, this information. They are going to ask you for statements from your lender. From your bank. And they're going to be looking at certain things. They're going to look to see whether what they're really looking at Like you would, even if you have a rental application, they're looking at the fact of: Are you really telling? In other words, if you put something down on your application, is that is is that true? You know, do we find out that you say on your application that you've got five thousand dollars in the bank, and then finally, when we get the uh, when we get the statements from the bank, we find out you don't have it. Okay, so they're looking to see whether or not the the borrower is actually telling the truth. That's why a lot of times people, when they're getting ready to fill out, uh, those loan applications, uh, real estate agents will normally tell the people, why don't you make sure that you get your current bank statements, get your current statements, so that when you put a figure down, you've got your bank account number, you've got the actual balance, you've got all that, so that when, the, when they go to verify this stuff, that they don't find out that what you told them is inaccurate. Okay, Again, preparation helps a lot. But it goes on from there. It says the underwriter will request, uh, use the request for verification deposit, is a, a, a figure in the book on that, to prove the borrower has the necessary funds in his and her bank accounts. This form is sent directly to the bank and returned to the underwriter without passing through the borrower's hands. When the underwriter receives the completed verification deposit, there are four things he or she will look at. Number one, does the verified information conform to the statements in the loan application, yes or no? Number two, does the borrower have enough money in the bank to meet the expenses of the purchase? Number three, has the bank account been opened only recently within the last couple of months? That's very important. Uh, you know, for example, maybe this person does not have, normally have the money and they've had mom and dad give them, a, you know, like $5,000 to throw in the bank and they're going to want that money back as soon as the house closes, <laughs> okay? So you want to know that. And last is is the present balance notably higher than the average notably higher than the average balance okay? Average balance means the concept is you take you put money in the bank, you write checks against it and it goes back down again. And at the end of the month, most bank statements will give you what the average balance has been. It'll show you maybe what it was last month, what it is this month, what the average balance is. So they're looking to see, Maybe you have $3,000 in there as an average balance, and all of a sudden it it's spiked up. It went to four or $5,000. They'll be questioning, why is that? Why has that happened? Okay. Anyway, going on from there, uh, this is just the picture. Or, or, or a, again, when, when I show you these forms, or they show you a form in the book, please keep in mind that these forms can change... You may look at this and turn around and say my form did not look like this form. That's probably true, but the concept is they're going to be asking for the same kind of information of some sort. So in this case, they're looking for a request for a de- uh, verification of deposit. They're going in here, and you're putting things down like uh, you know the um, the name and address of the depositor, you know who you have, you know the bank itself what kinds of accounts you have there, savings, checking, whatever, okay? Verification of deposits, how much money is in the accounts, okay? And typically what ends up happening is is that when you go to the bank uh, or you put this in, many times uh, this form will go forward and then the bank will send something back, okay? They'll have some kind of a computer printout or something that they'll send back, so that, And that's what they're basically... So it might be a little bit more elaborate of a form. It might be a little bit more, you know, but it's going to have that information on the form. That kind of information is going to be requested. Uh, the next thing is uh, they do show you in the book where if for some reason... You happen to be somebody that. Um, well, I'll go in here. They talk about financial statement. Another thing that may end up happening that the, that the underwriter may ask for is what we call a financial statement. Okay, which is typically uh, a more elaborate type of a statement. It says that if the bar's assets are substantial and diverse. In other words, they have a lot of stocks, a lot of bonds, a lot of mutual funds, a lot of real estate property, a lot of different things like that, and they may be qualifying for, you know, a fairly expensive house. Then what's going to happen is an audited financial statement may be the best way to explain the borrower's creditworthiness to the underwriter. Okay, in other words, where you're detailing. Audited means that you're, that you're, that you're having it prepared by an accountant. Okay, by a third party. A financial statement is a summary of, of the facts showing the individual's financial condition. It contains an itemized list of assets, liabilities, which serves to disclose the net worth. And they give you an example of what one of these may look like. Again, the form may very well be different, especially today in the area of have people having computers. It may be where the uh, typically people that have this kind of net worth probably have some kind of an accountant or a financial planner or somebody, or they're used to that. For no other reason, they have to keep track of this stuff. So they may actually be either, you know, submitting some other kind of form or, or, or uh, format or whatever. Uh, I don't see, I'm going to look down the bottom here, I don't see that this has any kind of Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac Form number on it, so I have to make the assumption that, you know, of course they may have a form for that, but uh, I'll make the assumption that they're going to be asking for assets, liabilities, that kind of a thing on the form. Now the other thing that you may run into is that where you're going, what you're going to do is you're going to qualify to buy the property, but you're going to have to sell another property in order to qualify. Now uh this could be for example where maybe you are selling an investment piece of property to buy another investment piece of property or to buy a home or in some cases you may be selling your primary residence to buy another property. So the lender's going to turn around and look at the fact and say well where is the depo- where is the down payment going to come from? Or uh, not the down payment but where's all this equity going to come from? You know, where's all and so you're going to have to say to them I'm selling my home and then, actually, when you get done selling your home, you're going to provide a HUD-1 statement that's going to show that you actually did sell it and where the money went as proof that you actually sold the property, okay? But this gives you an example of of how you would possibly calculate the value of... Uh, let me see what they're doing here. Um, okay, they're just basically... Uh, they're going through here. Let me see if I can read this here. It says, If a bar is selling, hold on a minute. If a bar is selling a property to raise cash to buy the subject property, the equity may be counted as a legitimate asset. Equity is the difference between the market value of the property and the sum of the selling expenses, mortgages, and other liens against the property. And what they do here is they have somebody that's going in for a construction loan. That's what they're trying to show here in this example saying for the purpose of the loan is to finance the construction of a new home on a lot owned by the borrower. The underwriter will treat the borrower's equity in the lot as cash or equivalent. And what they're doing is just giving you an example. They're saying, "Okay, here's what's happening. The per- person's going to build the property and it's estimated that it's going to cost 75. 75- now keep in mind that this 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 might be a house in Oklahoma City or something, but you know, in, in California, we're talking about something that would be a lot more expensive, but the, the concept of how you would go about figuring it is the same. So you have an estimated construction cost of $75,000. That probably has been given to you via the, um, the, the contractor that's going to build the house. Okay. You've submitted the plans. You now know what that's going to be, and that's how much you're going to borrow. You have a lot value worth $10,000. This is the total value of the property. That's assuming after the house is built, after. In fact, uh, when we had uh, Jeff Webb in, he was telling us uh, for an interview here, who, who's one of our real estate appraisers, he was telling that you'll be seeing on future shows, he was telling us that many times he's asked to actually go out and appraise a piece of property with the set of building plans to figure out what the property is actually going to be worth after it's constructed. Okay, it's not even constructed yet after it's constructed and come up with a value for the property. So this is not uncommon for them to even ask for the appraisal, too. So what's going to happen is is that the property, you're going to have a total value of the property of $85,000. A loan-to-value ratio, you're going to put $20,000 down, or I'm sorry, 20% down. You're going to finance 80%. So you're going to finance $68,000. That's the amount of the loan. You're going to take the total Property value, 85000 minus the amount of the loan, which means that you need to have a required down payment, okay, for the property of $17,000, but 10000 of that is coming from the lot that you already own because you own the lot free and clear, okay? Maybe you've had it for many years. Then you have some other liens against the property like a mortgage, okay? Maybe you owe some money, okay? And then, uh, finally, this is the amount of equity that you have in the property, okay? So that's the amount that you're going to be using for that, okay? That's just to give you an idea on how that would possibly be used, okay? A couple other things that they're going to be talking about in here that you may be looking at is other kinds of assets that you may be having, okay? Okay? So any other assets held by the borrower will help the loan application. Assets other than cash and real estate typically listed in a loan application include things like automobiles, furniture, jewelry, stocks, bonds, cash value, life insurance, so on and so forth. Life insurance, for example, depending upon if you have a, what we call a whole life policy, you can have equity or cash in that pro, in that policy. And if you have one of those, you'd know what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, so that could be something. And that's why they ask those questions, uh, why they ask those questions in those loan applications. Now you may get some people that'll go in and they own a really a lot of money, and it's que- clearly evident that they can afford to buy the house. And maybe the, uh, the underwriter will say, well, we're not really that interested in this particular case and that person's other assets because they make more than enough money and they have more than enough in liquid cash to take care of their business. They have a great credit rating, so this is not necessary. But there are cases where the underwriter may very well want to know these other details. Another thing that they talk about in here is that you may be getting some money from some people via what we call a gift letter. And what the underwriter is going to be concerned about with a gift letter is, is this really a gift or is it a loan? A gift means that you, whoever, for example, if parents are going to give their son or daughter, some money towards down payment, then there's a full assumption being made by the, by the underwriter that once that money is given to the child, the parents have absolutely no expectation of that being paid back. In other words, it is not a loan. It is a gift. And what they're going to want is a letter from the parents attesting to the fact that this is a gift. It is not a loan. If it was a loan, the problem with a loan is is if the parents gave the kids ten thousand dollars and maybe the people with that could just barely qualify to buy the property and now all of a sudden on top of that the parents want to start getting paid back on their loan. That could put the the kids in a situation where they could you know they they couldn't afford the property. So that's why they're concerned with that. Uh, Another thing now, now that we know we've got their income, we've got their assets, their liabilities, the last thing that we're talking about in here is their credit history. Um, You know, it says, as part of the loan evaluation, the underwriter will analyze the credit history of the borrower. This is accomplished by obtaining a credit report from a responsible credit bureau. Okay. So, um, and I think they have an example of, again, what a credit report may look like in here. So, again, this is a little bit hard for you to see on TV, but this is what the actual uh, credit report would look like. They're showing up here, you know, who, who it happens to be, you know, how long the credit has been for, the names. Down the bottom, they're showing what it is that the people actually owe, how much their payments are, if they're late or not late, so on and so forth. Okay? So that would be your credit report. All right? And what are they looking for when they look at this credit report? They're looking for things like do you pay your bills on time? Okay, do you pay them on time? Or are you consistently late? Uh, many times when people are fairly young, you know, they're 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 trying to make it, they get paid. After they pay their bills, they're constantly in this rotation fact that they're paying whatever the bill is, the people that are calling and bugging them. Where's my payment? <laughs> So they pay that guy, and then the other people go to the bottom of the pile, and they kind of work their way around. If you have a consistent history of paying on time and not paying on time, that's going to affect your credit. The other thing too, and there was a TV show on just recently, and it's really kind of sad, by the way. It really, it really kind of shook me up a little bit. And that is, is the, what the credit uh, credit card agencies are really doing to people, uh, which is, it could be a whole other show. But what's happening now when people get a lot of credit? Is that they'll get the credit card, and it could be a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, four thousand, whatever it happens to be. If they, and they'll say, by the way, the credit, uh, the interest we're going to charge you is eight percent or ten percent per year. And because you don't read, and they showed on TV one of these contracts, and they even had some attorneys trying to decipher the contracts, and they had a difficult time deciphering them. But basically what would happen is that interest rate that you were paying initially, could go from 8% to 20% overnight if you happen to be late on a payment. And that's really sad. And because now what happens with those credit cards is not only is your interest rate higher, but then all of a sudden people start, they can't make that payment, so now they start exceeding how much they owe. Now they get fined for the fact that they're over their limit. They get fined for a late payment. They get get penalty payments on top of that. And the next thing you know, they had like, for example, one couple that was on the show that owed over $80,000 who were in a situation that they could, they couldn't move. And a lot of that was caused by the fact of the, their interest rates going up on their loans. The other thing that I did not know myself was that if you, apparently, with the credit cards, if you are, you may be making the credit cards on time to, uh, say, for example, to a MasterCard. But all of a sudden, you miss a payment over here, or you go late on your car payment. And what's going to end up happening is because you were late on your car payment, and this makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever, but it's true. Because you were late on your car payment, and they were notified, they're going to raise your interest rate. Okay, so I'm starting to wonder, and it really bothers me, because there's two things. Number one is, is that what was surprising about that show is how many people do not understand credit and do not understand you know, what's happening in financial planning, which is really something that's really critical. Uh, they don't understand that. And the second thing is, is, is how it can get completely out of control, you know, absolutely completely out of control. And, again, I don't believe that those programs, in fact, I'm waiting for the day that some senator or congressman, hopefully, will come to see the light and introduce some legislation in Congress to stop this from happening. Because it's really sad. It's really hurting our consumers really badly. And the people that it's hurting are the people, as usual, that don't have the money and don't have the knowledge and the understanding of how to work it. It doesn't affect people that do. And, again, it's predatory practices, and it's really sad. And I'd love to see some legislation in that area to help that out. Again, they do look at some other things, things like limit on outstanding debt, how long you've had your credit. Okay, have you just, have you, did you just graduate from high school and this is the first credit card you ever had in your life? Uh, any restrictions on your credit and, how, and And do you have too much credit? The re, now, some people say, well, wait a minute, what do we mean by too much credit? That means that they look at all your bank cards and you have got 10 bank cards. And if you really went in and borrowed on every one of those cards, even so you don't owe maybe much on them right now, you could, you could end up owing overnight. $20,000, $30,000, because you have that large of a limit. So that's another thing that they look at. Okay, um, moving on from there, um, I want to show you, um, let me see, there are a couple of forms that are in here, and they don't have the figures in here, but I want you to just see what they are. The, the purpose of these forms, think of these forms as being like a blank form that you can fill out with your client or your client can fill out. Now, the reason why I'm doing this is because then I'm going to show you a website that this can work with. Okay, in here, they give you a form, and they break the forms down to how, what you're, where you're going to be looking at your income, your expenses, and those factors to figure out how much money you can borrow. And what they do is they have, one, for conventional loans, okay, that you would fill out or your client would fill out and this is where, you know, it's left blank so you can have your monthly income, what is your base salary, your overtime, your bonuses, your commissions and other, whatever the total happens to be. On this side you're putting your liabilities and they're giving you an example, things like car payments, child support, any other kind of debts. Okay, then that becomes the total. Then down here is where we put those factors in that we were talking about the last time. Here's our housing expense factors. This is where we take our stable monthly income, we plug it in here. This is where we take a percentage of that. This gives us our maximum mortgage payment that we could make that we talked about before. This is the floor. Okay. So for example, if it was uh, uh, if you made $10,000 a month, then 28% would be $2,800 a month. Okay. That's the bottom floor is what we're talking about. The second one is the total is the higher one that we talked about, where we're including other factors like housing expenses and things like that. Here you have your stable monthly income. This is the times 36%. So if, if you made 10, and this, I'm only using these figures because it's easy for me to do the math. If you made $10,000 a month, this would be $3,600. Okay, so that's the top. So we're talking about somewhere between 2800 and 3600 a month is where we're talking about the range. Okay, so what I want you to get is that these are the forms that will help you do, and they have one in here for conventional loans, okay, with those ratios. They have a second one in here for people that are looking to get an adjustable. They all look pretty much the same, but I want to point out the difference between them. This is for an adjustable rate loan at 90% loan-to-value ratio, Okay, so that's what that form is for with those ratios. Um, They have another one in here for um, VA loans, okay? So just so you understand that this is is the same conceptual idea, the thing that changes is the percentages, okay? What I want to do now is I want to take a minute and go to a website that I think you all will find that's hopefully find that is has some valuable information on it that may help you if you're looking at buying a home, okay, or financing a home. And again, this is at, at your Blackboard website. I'm going to go down here and go to, wait a minute, wrong side. I'm going to go down here and go to website links. I'm going to go down to the chapter that we're talking about. And by the way, these things are always subject to change, but it gives you an idea. You know, there's many of these out here. This is qualifying the borrower. What I do is I have two things in here. I have mortgage underwriter guidelines, okay, which I think is a pretty good website, but it's basic. And then this is Fannie Mae's business-to-business website. This is more containing training and things like that for people that are basically in the lending business that want to have some additional training. Uh, they have on-site videos, they have PDF files, they have a lot of things, but what I want to do is go to this one site here, which is the mortgage underwriting. And uh, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take some time and go through this site because of what, what, what it does. First of all, I'd like you to see that across the top we have some tabs, and each one of these are going to be separate pages, if you will. We have something called Home. That's where we're starting. We have the loan process. Is going to explain to us what the loan process is. We have how to prepare, um, prepare in advance. So when we get ready to go get the loan, what do we need to get in order to prepare before we ever, you know, go there? Talk about loan types here. This is called debt consolidation. This is how to select people like a real estate agent, a loan company, things like that. This is a guide to professionals and then this is for people that want to sell a property on their own. They called that FSBO, sometimes be pronounced as fisbo, means for sale by owner. On the left-hand side over here are some things such as credit guidelines, This is all the stuff we've been talking about, okay? Everything we've been talking about is on this website. Uh, Debt-to-income ratios, down payments, uh, compensating factors that you may have, which we talked about. Uh, Credit report, uh, understanding the appraisal process or what an appraisal really is. Uh, Calculators. They have a couple neat calculators on here that I want to show you how they operate that I think are pretty good. What's new, and then ask questions. So I just, I'm just going to show you some of this, and then I want to do some of the stuff that's over here on the side. Going across the top, um, this just talks about what we've been discussing in class, the mortgage underwriting guidelines. So it goes through what they're talking about. It refers back to, um, you know, again, you know, the mortgage undergra- uh you know, all the links and everything to the mortgage underwriting process. So you're familiar with that. The loan process, what they do is they walk you through, again, from application all the way through to processing the application, the underwriting process, what happens there, what the underwriter actually does. Uh, There is something called automated underwriting. What it is is that nowadays, uh, you know, a lot of underwriters, we have a computer program that we plug this information in and it does the underwriting for it. So, in other words, you don't have to have a human being that's actually clicking and hitting buttons, and, or I mean, that's looking at it. It's done more or less on an automated basis. Uh, we have conditions to close, clear close, and draw documents. So, we're t- walking you through the entire process here, which I think is really good. Preparing in advance, um, and again, this will come up here in a minute. It talks about you know, just getting yourself. To prepare in advance, uh, um, it starts out here, it says, if you're planning to purchase a new home, it is best that you begin to prepare at least three months in advance. Okay? Uh, first, make sure your credit history is being reported accurately because you gonna. If you may have something that you need to have corrected. Uh, don't be fooled and ripped off by companies that will cha- charge you a lot of money and promise To remove negative credit from your report. Know that up ahead of time. You know, I mean, to fix your credit report, you're going to have to go in and prove that they're wrong and you're right. Okay? Um, So, anyway, they talk about that. I think that that's important for you to know what that is. They talk about things like uh, rented mortgage bills, so on and so forth. Okay? Your documents, what documents you need to bring. What we've talked about in the book, it says you will be required to bring to your broker the following documents, and it tells you. They cannot even start your loan without them, and they must see the originals, so don't bother making copies. They'll make the copies. If they want copies, you bring the originals, they look at them, they verify their originals, they make the copies and give the originals back to you is the way it works. Um, so anyway, they go through that, and they they tell you things. Don't leave the originals with them. You will need to collect three months, uh, bank statements, all, all pages, all accounts, last two years of W-2, complete tax returns. So telling you, the point I want to get across is it's telling you everything that we've been telling you. Okay, so it's like what I'm trying to prove, I guess, is that this is a good site, but I'm also not making it up as I go. Um, this is talking about the types of loans. Uh, things like, uh, which type is best for you, points, you know, so if you're going in here, it's talking about, you know, just basically conventional loans, fixed rate, adjustable rate, balloon payment mortgages, FHA, VA loans, all in one picture. Very, very good site. Okay? Uh, debt consolidation is another topic that they talk about, is consolidating your debt. Okay, where you maybe have some outstanding car loans and things like that, and you want to put them underneath one, one, one property. This is just talking about how to select these different professionals, like appraisers, mortgage companies, whatever. Uh, this is Guide to Professionals, and then this is For Sale by Owner. And if you click on this one here, this will talk and take you to a site that is something that you might be interested in called the For Sale by Owner site which is for people that want to sell the property on their own, for sale by owner. So you can list your property on here for free, okay? And it walks you through all the steps if you're trying to get yourself ready to sell the property. So it could be a good learning resource for you to get yourself prepared. Okay, going back from there. Now, down on the left-hand side, they give you the credit guidelines that we've talked about. So these are your credit guidelines, your credit scores. It talks about the different score rates and what kinds of a loan and how much you're going to have to pay. You know, that you may have to pay more if your credit score is under or, or pay more if it's under a certain level. So it talks about that. It talks about your credit payment history, your mortgage, your rent, your car payment, so on and so on, everything we've been talking about. Okay. Debt-to-income ratios. We've been discussing that. This talks about all of the total monthly payments, revolving charge accounts, cosign loans, child support, all that kind of stuff is all listed right in here. Okay? Different ratios. These are the ratios that we've been spending a lot of time going over. You know, when we talk about the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, allowable maximum 28 to 36, it's right here. Okay? So all those ratios are located right there. Okay? Uh, let me see, down payment, uh, okay, down payment is another one. They go in, they talk about the down payments for FHA, VA, conventional, non-conforming loans. Uh, compensating factors, okay, compensating factors are, uh, you know, talking about things such as you know what we're going to go ahead and give you the loan because there's one this one area where maybe your credit is a little bit off but you've got a substantial amount of money in savings okay we're talking about some kind of allowing that little bit of gray area to work into the fact and not have it so cold as to say these this is the criteria if you don't meet it bang you're out of it so it's allowing a little bit of flex not much but a little bit of flexibility Um, This link here talks about how to repair your credit. So if you've had a credit issue, how do you go about fixing it? Where do you start? Okay, so I think that that is uh, really good. Um, Understanding appraisals, of course. You know, for people that have not understood, we've talked about that in the class, what the appraisal process is, and, again, having, uh, having an understanding of that. Uh, and then what I really like here is this calculators. For some reason, I like these calculators. And what I like about them is it allows me to do some what-if statements or what-if scenarios, if you will. So I'm going to pick up one. It says, how much, can my, uh, how much are my payments? So, for example, if you just want to know what your monthly payments are going to be on a certain amount of money, all you really have to do is up here, it says, what's the mortgage length? Here it's 30 years. Okay. What's my interest rate? What's my loan amount? What's my annual tax going to be? Okay? And what's my annual insurance going to be? And all I have to do is I have to just, so I'm going to take something. Let's say, for example, we have a house that we're going to buy, and the amount of money that we're going to borrow is $300,000, and our annual tax that we pay is $3,000, because we live in California. And our annual insurance is 300, let's make it say uh, 500, okay? If I say calculate, this will come down right here and give me what my monthly payments are going to be. It tells me what my principal and interest is, what my monthly tax part of that bill is going to be, what my monthly insurance is going to be, what my total monthly payment is. Very nice little calculator. The next one that I think is pretty good in here is uh, let me see if I can get this one. Here's another one that I like: comparing three loans. This is a question that a lot of times people will ask. They'll say, for example, I want to uh, borrow money, and I can. If I borrow it at 30 years, this is what my interest rate is going to be. If I borrow it at 15 years, this is what my interest rate is going to be. Okay, so or my payments are going to be. So I have room for loan one, loan two, and loan three. So in loan one, this is the number of payments, which I wish they would have kept the same. So we have to remember that if we're going to pay a 30-year loan, it's 360 payments. This is what my interest rate's going to be here. So I'm going to say that this is going to, I'm going to use a figure, I'll say at, uh, say, 6%. The amount of money that I'm going to borrow is 300000 okay? Now, if I want to calculate that, I just hit the key, and it tells me my payment is going to be $1,798 a month. So I know whether it's going to be under that circumstance. The next thing is, is I may have where I'm going to be looking at a loan, but this time I'm going to be making payments, for example, at uh, for 15 years rather than 30 years. And I want to take a look at that, so I'm going to say, okay, my number of payments is not 360, it's going to be 180 they are going to give me a better interest rate they're going to give me they're going to make my interest rate i'm just going to make this up at 5.5% why because i'm paying it off quicker i'm going to go ahead and borrow the same amount of money and i can go ahead and compute that okay and this is showing me my payment here is going to be 2451 again that's where i'm looking at the fact that maybe i want to get the loan and pay the house off quicker and then maybe what I may do at the end of this, I may say, well, let me look at one other scenario. And I keep changing these things. I can say, okay, what about if I have uh, the third loan here? It's going to be a payment for 30 years, which will be 360 payments. And I'm going to have an interest rate of, uh, I originally tried uh, 6%. Why don't I go ahead and try uh, another interest rate at five, uh, 57 sorry here, 5 get rid of this, okay, 5.75. But what I'm going to do is I'm not going to borrow 300. I'm going to get some money. Mom and dad are going to give me, or wait a minute, maybe I want to compare the two. I'm going to say, I'll call it 6%, but I'm going to get a gift from my parents, okay? They're going to give me an amount of $25,000. Okay, what is my, I'm going to compute that. So now what I can do, if I can see here, Oh, I didn't put that last zero in there. Okay, now I'll compute it again. So I can see that I can see that, for example, if I'm going to go ahead and finance the whole amount at six percent, my payments are going to end up being seventeen hundred ninety-eight dollars. On the other hand, if I go ahead and put twenty-five thousand dollars down, or maybe my parents give me twenty-five thousand dollars, my payment is going to be fourteen hundred and ninety-eight dollars a month. Okay, so it's just another way for me to look at information and play with it. Play with the numbers and see what happens. One more calculator in here. I think that was interesting is, um, let me see if I can find I think it might have been this payment. Yeah, I think so. Okay, how much of a down payment do I need? Um, okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to come up in here and try to put some additional information. First of all, I'll take the $300,000 house, okay? Percentage of down payment would be, uh, say, um, I don't know, let's say I'm going to put down, it's going to be FHA, I'm going to put down 3%. Okay, estimated interest rate would be, uh, say, um, 6.5. Discount points that I'm going to pay in order to get the loan, I'm going to pay... Uh, two points. Uh, any additional expenses that I'm going to have, uh, estimated annual, okay, uh, additional expenses, taxes, I'm going to buy this house, so it's going to be $3,000 a year. Estimated homeowners association dues are going to be, let's say, $150 a month. I'll go ahead and calculate that. Here's what it does down here. It shows me what my mortgage payment it shows me the uh, mortgage amount. Okay. It shows me what my down payment is going to have to be. Remember, 3%. It shows me what my discount points are going to be because I'm putting two point I'm getting two points discount, I think it was, that I was asking for. One minute. This is the closing costs. This is the prepaid, This is the total cash. Okay? Then down below it's showing me what my principal and interest, my property taxes, and so on and so forth are going to be. So, again, I think, and there are a lot of calculators out there. There's a lot of ways of doing this. But I think that this is a good way, in fact, I would say that you would really want to find, if you're in the real estate business, some way that you can maybe sit there with a client and work through these issues. You can even do this in an Excel spreadsheet, but you could work through in these issues and very quickly keep changing the scenarios and find out what works best. At least it's not completely you know, it it will help you in making those decisions. And with that, I want to thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you back here the next time for the next show. That, have a nice day. We'll see you back the next time. Bye-bye.